Hello everybody. Welcome to another episode of Ruth is Stranger Than Fiction. been away for a little while from the podcasting not really away just busy just not doing any episodes sorry about that but we're back now with a mini stranger chris is here hello hi chris uh, and i'm here of course i'm your host ruth mcphee without further ado i want to pour a drink because the ice is melting it's that time of year when i have a drink ready but the ice is with every second that passes diluting the precious alcohol within the booze so i'm going to pour the drink chris fine Are you trepidatious? Well, I've had some pre-warning, I suppose, of what's coming. So, yes. (laughs) Okay. So, let me explain what this is. It's green. Not a toxic green. Kind of pale green. It's going into a nice chilled glass. A little bit of a mint is going on top. Now, I will explain what this is. We've been growing courgettes in our garden. We've been growing ball courgettes, which are, I mean, as the name suggests, (laughs) ball-shaped. Courgettes, but in ball form form some of them got really much too big we're supposed to pick them when they get to the size of a like a um, snooker ball but they grow very fast so one day you'll look and they're the size of maybe a golf ball or a ping pong ball or a ping pong ball and you think oh well I've got a little bit of time then you look again my lord they're the size of a tennis ball so anyway (laughs) I was searching around what can we do with these courgettes and this my friends is a courgette martini shall we have a sip Mm. Ziggy, too tart, too, too tart. tart for you. <laughs> what goes in this is you grate some courgettes, you mix the grated courgettes with some lemon and some sugar, lemon juice and some sugar, leave that for a while, and then you mix it with gin and vermouth and put a bit of lemon, uh, sorry, uh, a sprig of mint on top. Shaken or stirred? Uh, stirred. It's lucky because I was about to go full shake on it and then I quickly read the instructions again and it said gently stir and I thought probably <laughs> we don't want a frothy courgette martini. <laughs> I think this is quite tasty. The next question is, what do we do with the sodden pile of um, grated courgette that's sitting in our kitchen? Booze soaked? No, it didn't soak the booze. It uh, soaks in lemon and sugar. Okay. I might the booze have been encouraged to later. eat booze soaked courgette. No. But... Anyway, I think this is quite nice. Yeah, I I'm mean, declaring it a success. I don't think it tastes much of courgette. It tastes mostly like lemon and vermouth. It's possible I we seeped it too long. Oh, is that possible? To steep too long? Well, it said steep for an hour and we steeped for a full episode of The Butcher plus a full episode of Bob's Burgers. But so, we were fast-forwarding the adverts on The Butcher. True. So it may so have probably been only just over an hour. Anyway, I've got some more in that there shaker. So once this goes down a bit, we'll pop a bit more in before the ice dilutes. Anyway, it's a tasty drink, but it's got nothing to do with what we're talking about today. I can't believe you haven't told us yet. I know. I wanted to get the drink in. We will be drinking this and we're going to be talking about the town of Dunwich in Suffolk. What would you suggest? I don't know, village? Well, that's going to be an interesting part of our story. Probably quite a lot of you are familiar with Dunwich. It's on the Suffolk coast. It's famous for, tell us Chris. Well, falling into the sea. Falling into the sea. (laughs) Poor old Dunwich. (laughs) 
<laughs> a lot of it's fallen in the sea. But I thought, wouldn't it be nice to learn more about the history of Dunwich and how it came to fall into the sea? So that's what we're going to do. It was pre-global warming as well. It was just coastal erosion. Just your bog-standard coastal that was, that's erosion. That's it then. Is that the end of the story? No, because the story isn't... Look, if I was going to talk about why it happened, I'd have had to read a lot more about fucking geology. What I've read about is history. I can do history. I can't do geology. Not geology. Geology. Jesus. Sarah McPhee did a geology A-level. She could tell us why coastal erosion happens. Yeah, probably. But I'm not going to tell you about that. LSD. (laughs) What's LSD? Longshore drift. Oh, I don't know. You don't remember that from uh, GCSE geography? I don't know what longshore drift is. Oh yeah, neither do I really. Oh my lord. It's it's how the action of the tides moves the stones of a beach. Are we back to Oxbow Lakes? I mean, we're not far (laughs) off. We're in similar territory. (laughs) No one wants to hear about Oxbow Lakes again. Shall we get... BBC Bite Size. Shall we get on with Dunwich? So I thought, you know, we've done some people lately, Catchpole. Last time, lovely Margaret Catchpole. The time before that, the Pot and Poisoner, Sarah Dasley. So I thought, let's go to a town some land. This is quite interesting in a way as well because it gets us some history of East Anglia that we haven't really covered before, but that has a little bit of overlap with some areas we have covered before, plus shows me that there are some massive gaps in what we've covered and I should learn more about this stuff in the future. First then, let's go back, way, way back, Mm. further than ever before. Come with me now to the 5th century, if you will. It's a long way. Back to the time when our corner of the world was known as the Kingdom of the East Angles. Do you know anything of these Angles? Well, I guess they're like the Angles and the Saxons, aren't they? Yes, but what do you know about the well, Angles? Oh, nothing. Literally nothing. It was <laughs> right. how many thousand years ago? Well, I've told you it's the 5th well, yeah, century. So, mm, 1600. You do the maths. So, the Angles were a Germanic people who settled in the eastern lump of England, as we know, the old lady's bum. The lump. The old lady's bum lump. The old lady's lumpy bum. Uh, Perhaps as long ago as the 5th century, because there aren't, you know, clear records about what was going on back then. The Germanic angles were not from Germany. What? Don't let that fool you. Germanic did fool me into believing they might be German. But in fact... Look, I didn't do a lot of research into this. I felt like it was a massive tangent that wasn't going to be that interesting. But no, so the Germanic people actually lived across a lot of Europe and it didn't just mean present day Germany. Where they were from was modern day Denmark, (laughs) our old foes. (laughs) Our recent foes. Our recent foes and our old foes. So these Angles, they came from that area of Europe, of course, at the time, it wasn't designated into these delightfully EU countries as it is today. Maybe another day we're going to talk a bit more about these Angles tribes, because if we want to ever look at St Edmund, do you remember about St Edmund mm-hmm. from the Great Stone of Ling? Yeah, lost his head. Lost his head in the woods. And then was a ghost. God, the drink. Is the it ma- a pot? The mention of the word ghost, your is drink it- made a clacking noise. Is it St Edmund? Anyway, we'll cover all that more. What I want to just establish today, here and now, is that the Angles came from around about the Denmark area. They came to the old lady's bum, East Anglia, back to Dunwich, high-ish up on the Suffolk coast. This dates back to the time of the Angles, basically, some scholars say. And there's, in a lot of old records, there's talk of somewhere called Domuk, or Domuk, I guess, which was in records mentioned as being the kind of, if you like, like the capital of the kingdom of the East Angles. Wow. And there's quite a lot of debate about actually what 
this capital was in terms of modern day towns or yeah. settlements. What does Norwich have to say about that? Well, Norwich doesn't get a lick in. It's too far north. So some of the, the kind of debates around this, some suggest Felixstowe, some suggest Walton Castle, but there has been a group of scholars who have suggested that Dunwich was the old Dummock. Right, as a thriving seaport. Yeah, and as a kind of centre for... Uh, Trading, probably. Yeah, and activity of the angles. So it's possible that we can date it as being a kind of really important settlement as far back as then. Now, some more Danish armies came... In the 8th century, and after many battles, they made the area their own, and that's when Edmund got his head off. Right. So that's a kind of far back look at maybe Dunwich has its roots back as far as the 5th century. What we need to do now is whiz forward. Right. Whiz! Because what we're mostly concerned with is it going in the sea. Whiz quickly, Chris! Okay. Okay. No chance for detail. Just a haphazard collection of information. How convenient. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry, it's too fast for any detail. But, <laughs> I'm sorry, we can't get bogged down in all that kind of business. What we can actually do, though, is talk about the Doomsday Book, mm. which is fun because um, it is a historical document that yeah. is available and understandable. Yeah. Facts is what we're getting at now. Right. Don't worry about facts before the Doomsday Book, only afterwards. Our old friend, the Doomsday Book. Tell me the year. Ten... Yes. 60. No. 7. <laughs> You're not too far off. It's 1086. Oh. So in 1086, the Doomsday Book records the settlement of Dunwich as having a population of 3,000 people. It's pretty oh, good, isn't yeah. it? It's pretty good for the time. The town is noted to have three churches. Perhaps surprisingly, this placed Dunwich in the largest 10% of settlements recorded in the Doomsday Book. Wow. So it was quite significant for the time, quite a significant town. And actually, 3,000 people in Dunwich was, you might find this surprising, around one-sixth of the population of London at the time. Wow. So I Dunwich, do find it surprising. Dunwich was a sixth of the size of London. Right. In the Doomsday Book. It continued to grow and thrive over the next 200 years. Records remain of the existence of several further churches built after 1086 a franciscan abbey called greyfriars we also have a, another abbey called blackfriars <laughs> that's the dominican abbey sorry so we've got franciscans grey dominicans black uh, a leper chapel somewhat intriguingly there was also uh, what is called a preceptory of the knights templar Sounds built like you know what that is where they stash their hordes no but you know who the knights templar are well um, the masons i yeah, don't know the masons yeah. Yeah, the Masons. And it's been suggested that the Preceptory of the Knights Templar was thought to be founded in around 1189 in Dunwich. Preceptory. Preceptory. Like precept. Yes. Is it, and a precept is a bit of a church? Yes, yeah, so a kind of uh, central hub, I guess. Okay. A religious hub. Right. And it's thought that this was based on a similar structure to the circular temple church in the City of London, which is a kind of well-known right. Masons haunt this not the uh, masonic chapel near liverpool street in the hotel yeah no well, I mean, I obviously so. it wasn't a hotel at the time was it I no guess. no no because it's circular and that that one so chris and i have been to i can't remember the name of the hotel there's a hotel near liverpool street yeah, it's and basically right next door isn't it inside the hotel secret 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 is an old knights templar chapel and they used to do for the east end film festival they used to do screenings and I went for a few years to see various different things inside the Masonic Chapel, which was very excellent as a setting for films. Like, what did we see in there? It was the documentary about 
Alex, can't remember his surname, King of the Witches. Yeah. And I saw Teams of the Rhine Dead, which has the riding dead. Oh, the uh, Nazgul. Which basically, it, when you watch that and then you watch uh, Lord of the Rings and you watch the, the ring wraiths like galloping on their black horses, that is basically a scene from Teams of the Blind Dead. Good old Peter Jackson. Yeah, I mean, it's atmospheric. So anyway, it's very exciting. So not there. No, not there. No, 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 no. Somewhere circular. <laughs> That's key. So all these uh, more churches, two priories, a leper chapel, a mysterious Knights Templar preceptory. That's just the religious buildings that were getting built in Nunwich. And we, presumably they're the ones that are most easily recorded. Yeah, but we also have a guild hall, a mint, a port and naval base. A proper port and naval base was constructed with a harbour and several large and fancy houses for the landowners and their associates. So it's, you know, it's big. It's growing to city size. It's got all these different buildings coming in. Thriving, prosperous, doing really well for itself. In 1199, the settlement was granted a royal charter. A royal charter. A royal charter when King John ascended to the throne. What does that mean? Basically means it gets sort of officially incorporated into the Kingdom of England. Oh, right. So uh, there were plenty of places that didn't have the Royal Charter at that point. Yes. That were considered the hinterlands. Sort of. I'll tell you what else it means. It means you get the status of Borough of England, which means you can elect a council and you can send magistrates to Parliament. Oh, ah, okay. You get a say in things. Exactly. They, at this point, got some bailiffs, a coroner, all the kind of the figures The trappings of, of local uh, government. Exactly. And they got the right to send two representatives to Parliament. Parliament from Dunwich. As I learned from the website dunwich.org.uk, which actually has a lot of very excellent information about Dunwich on, including some cool diagrams of this coastline moving over oh, the years, terrifyingly inland from, you know, used to be out far loads of land. Mm. Then you look and it's like, uh-oh, that land's all gone. Now that's just sea. So Dunwich.org.uk estimates that at its height, Dunwich had a population of around 5,000 and an area of around 800 acres. To give an essentially meaningless but possibly vaguely interesting comparison, 800 acres is, I think I've done my maths right, significantly smaller than Cambridge today. So around like one fifteenth of the size of Cambridge today. I thought you were going to tell me how many football pitches it is. <laughs> In terms of our modern cities, it was small, but for the time, it's big. Yeah. Especially compared to a lot of others in the county and the region. Things seem to be going pretty well for the people of Dunwich. A thriving port, some excellent trade. Two representatives. Two representatives at Parliament all seem to be going very, very well. But nature had other ideas. Yeah. Screw you, says nature. Screw you, fool humans. Blind my face and I'll show you what's what. We were at the mercy of nature. There'd actually been early signs of trouble even before the Doomsday Book because the Doomsday Book records between 1066, Battle of Hastings. Thanks. You know, significant. And 1086, at least half the taxable farmland had disappeared <laughs> due to coastal erosion. In fairness, that should have been a warning, right? Yeah, so if you think... The town's not, you know, there's the port and the harbour, which is, of course, that's on the coast inevitably. And then the, the town is like somewhat Laid inland and yeah. you've got farmland in between the sea and the town. Half of that farmland gone in the sea. The cliffs have sort of been boshed away 
by the general wear and tear of the ocean and the nature of the, the kind of pariable rock, but also some particularly big storms will kind of take off big chunks. Right. Or if you get tidal surges, the same thing, that's going to surge in and take off chunks. And at that point, the cliff edge collapses. So the cliffs just get closer and closer so and closer. So just going back to geology again for a oh, second. Must we? Well, why are these cliffs particularly susceptible to collapsing, whereas, say, the White Cliffs of Dover or the Seven Sisters, I'm naming other famous cliffs, haven't gone in the sea. I can only assume it's due to the particular geographical and geological makeup of the nature of the rock. Plus, I guess it's positioning on the coast, so is it more likely to get buffeted? Buffeted. But it's not... There's other towns in the UK and indeed on coastal regions where this has happened to. Yeah, yeah. That they've gone in the sea, but Dunwich is the one for us. Now, this area of coast was and still is one of the fastest eroding in Europe. Up until the late 13th century, this erosion had primarily affected farmland and sometimes the harbour, leaving the town itself unharmed. (laughs) However, things began to take a terrible turn in the years of 1286 and 1287. Some very powerful storms hit the Suffolk coast. It was at this point that significant damage to the buildings of the town itself began to show as the coastal cliffs continued to collapse bit by bit down into the ocean below and the cliff edges got inward, further, further, further inward. Wary of the encroaching coastline, Greyfriars Priory, which had been actually built dangerously close to the cliff edge was moved inland in 1290 and it had only really been constructed about 20 years earlier and then they were like you say that like it's just a trivial matter yeah they just moved it inland (laughs) they moved it inland they were like fuck this what have we done why have we put it right by the cliff so they moved it further further inland more west to kind of alongside the farthest reaches of where the town was thinking that that would keep it safe Mm. In its new position, it was one of the most westerly buildings in the town and quite a few of the ruins of the Priory are still visible today. And I know that you've been to Dunwich. I was just about to say, is now the time I tell you that I've been to Dunwich? Tell us! You know I've been to Dunwich. Tell us everything. Not really very much there, but I do remember going to the ruins of a Priory, which I assume now... Greyfriars. Greyfriars Priory. I mean, I probably knew at the time. It was probably getting on for 10 years ago, so I don't remember so well now. But What did you see there? Not a great deal. Stayed at a very nice campsite. Walked along the coast to Southwold. Lovely. Went to a lot of Adnams pubs. Great. They went there at the time, of course. But that's what Southwold's well known for now, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. That and its lighthouse. I haven't been to Dunwich, but I do hope to go. I don't remember there being... Oh, this is going to sound like an idiot. I don't remember there being cliffs. I remember the beach and I remember... Well, the cliffs... You know, like an elevation above the beach, but it certainly wasn't... Well, they're not... I mean, when I say cliffs, it's not like you mentioned the White Cliffs of Dover right. or something. It's not on that scale, but it's basically a vertical drop... So when things were going into the sea, the sea would obviously, the further and further it got, the things would be consumed by the ocean. But as we'll see, you know, some of the ruins or some of the buildings would drop from the cliffs and for a time they would be ruins on the beach and you would still be able to see the masonry Mm -hmm. on the beach and then gradually the sea would get inward and inward and inward and they would be lost. Things started to get drastic with the hurricane-like storms of 1328 and 1347. Significant losses to Dunwich proper were recorded around this time. Around 400 low-lying houses were lost to the sea. Movement of the shingles, which were forced into new positions by the fierce wind and waves, meant that the harbour ended up being blocked off. So the shingles kind of under and in the low-lying areas of the beach um, and under the waves were moved all about, and this meant that actually boats could no longer access the harbour. 
which meant... Financial ruin, presumably. Economic disaster yeah. for Dunwich. Trading ships had to dock instead at Warberswick. Oh, yeah. That's between uh, Dunwich and Southwold. Yeah, so a bit up north from Dunwich, which meant that all the associated revenue and trade was, of course, also going via Warberswick. I'd say to Dunwich, expand to the point where you consume Warberswick. <laughs> Well, I'm not sure that was within their capabilities at the time. And maybe Warberswick didn't want to be engulfed by Dunwich. Invade Warberswick. That's what you'd have done, is yeah. it? Just grown an army and I'd invaded I'd say we've Warberswick. got two MPs. What have you got, Warberswick? <laughs> well, they probably had their own MP. Oh, a natural invert. Fine. <laughs> so this was bad news. This was bad news. So nature is fucking Dunwich. But at this point, nature's causing economic fuckery as well as physical fuckery if you like so from here on in i'm afraid it's just a catalogue of disasters just an absolute catalogue of disasters think of that cliff edge think if you lived in dunwich Mm. every time there's a tidal surge or a storm just looking at that cliff edge a little bit closer thinking i'm going to engage those people who moved the monastery to shift my house a little bit closer a little bit closer The town was on borrowed time, particularly as its dwindling economic fortunes meant that the incentives to try to create defences or rebuild anything which was lost were dwindling as well. You know, there's no point rebuilding your harbour. There's no point rebuilding the houses that have gone in the sea because people are leaving the town now because it's not economic. They're all moving to Warberswick. People are going inland. During the 13th century, at least three of the town's churches went in the sea. (laughs) What does God say about that? (laughs) There's probably a lesson for some people, I don't know. Maybe, hang on, were there brothels in the town? I thought you were going to say in the churches, I was going to say. I wouldn't have thought so. Could have been some brothels. Right. God was punishing them. Is that mm. what you're saying? I'm just saying it Put could the be. brothels in the sea then, not the churches. <laughs> God's made a misjudgment. The Dominican monks of Blackfriars Laughing began... at their Greyfriars neighbours. <laughs> well, no, they began to make preparations to move to a safer location. <laughs> they were like, we probably will abandon this one and move somewhere else. They thought we're going to go to uh, Blytheborough. As it turned out, though, before their abbey went in the sea and before they moved on, Henry VIII just came along. Oh, dissolution yeah. of the monasteries. Fine. <laughs> So, not hilarious. Save, save them a job but, of work. But they ended up not going in the sea, but they got... They probably all tortured and killed, weren't they? They got dissoluted. Yeah, that's what it means. <laughs> dissoluted and all the money taken away and given to Henry VIII. And their abbey fell into ruin as a result. The preceptory of the Knights Templar also got done by Henry. He dissoluted that one as well. I would have thought he would have been well into that. Well, they were very rich, is the thing you have to remember. Right. So he was well into their money. Apparently a vast fortune was discovered in the preceptory of the Knights Templar. It's hidden in Dunwich. Yeah, so that, I imagine, is what he wanted to seize. So he seized what riches he could. The temple was demolished in 1585, and the last foundations were washed away in the early 1600s. The final ruins of Blackfriars... They lasted until 1717. Oh, well. Then they also went into the sea. (laughs) All of it, Chris, in the sea. Can you even believe it? The sea is hungry. It's so greedy, isn't it? Greedy for priories and preceptories. My word. Now, do you want to hear about some more collapses? Yeah. What else is going in the sea? Tell me next. (laughs) More losses still took place with surges and cliff collapses in 1560. And 1570. More is going in. Right. By 1602, the town was reduced to just a quarter of the size that it had been at its most populous and most prosperous. The decline continued. It's all downhill. There's no happy end. I hope I hadn't led you to expect one. Interestingly, through much of the destruction I am about to recount now, 
And despite the increasingly dwindling population of Dunwich, as inhabitants' houses went in the sea and trade went to fuck and all the religious stuff got shitted on, people were just leaving Dunwich. Yeah, you would, wouldn't you? Yeah. But despite this, the borough continued to elect and send two members of Parliament to London. Greedy. (laughs) Well, interestingly enough, apparently this became one of the most notorious rotten boroughs in the county. Oh, you know what I was going to say earlier on? Uh, What do you know about rotten boroughs? Well, that episode of Blackadder. You're going to tell me Blackadder. (laughs) (laughs) Tell us what you know from Blackadder. Well, they'll elect a pig if they can. (laughs) It's about shifting the boundaries, isn't it, I think? Well, no, it's not quite about shifting the boundaries. It's about keeping the boundaries. But implying that there are more people than there are. Keeping the historical representatives, even though, obviously, over this period of time, over these centuries, there was a huge amount of change in terms of which areas were prosperous and populous and which areas weren't. So somewhere like Dunwich went from having 5,000 people to having maybe 1,000 people. But because historically they'd had two members of parliament that continued but what that meant was that it was it was ripe for corruption basically because you've got a small pool of people enough people that you're able to cause sway with yeah and then so rotten boroughs were known to be these areas which were kind of easy to corrupt and easy to get a member elected who could then influence parliament in an undue way compared to the population of the place they were representing The Reform Act of 1832 put a stop to this. They were like, hang on, there's rotten boroughs all over this bloody country. Yeah. This is a joke. Now, what I want to know about is what went in the sea next. Okay. It's 1740. Can you believe it? A new low. Stuff is is still going in the sea. (laughs) Things are at a new low. Every time the low is new and worse. Storms flattened almost all of the remaining buildings in the town. (laughs) So this wasn't even going in the sea. Just flattened. The iconic Church of All Saints was one of the only establishments left standing. Now, All Saints Church was built during the Norman era, so late 11th century. This was when the town was prospering and rapidly expanding, of course. The Normans wanted in. Yeah, and it was one of the largest churches in Suffolk for a long time, a very fine establishment. But by 1750, the upkeep of the church didn't seem worth the expense because everyone could see that church is going to go in the sea. (laughs) It's going in there at some point. It's now or it's soon. It was clear to everyone that that doom was on its way. So basically the townsfolk abandoned the church because to repair the various things, was it was too much. I mean, I would say if I was the townsfolk, I'd be abandoning God. (laughs) Because God's abandoned them. Yes. (laughs) They kept using the churchyard for a while though. Right, we've got to put the dead people somewhere. So the churchyard was at the like the far end of the church, away from the sea, and they kept putting people in the graveyard there, even as they knew that the, this church was going to be taken Ooh. over. Did the oh, ho, ho. cliffs fall away <laughs> and parts of bodies Could poke be. out? Could be that that's going to happen. It was in 1904 that the cliff... Entering the modern era. ...edge finally reached the church. And, of course, there's photographic evidence from sort of here on in. Yeah. Because All Saints Church was one of the last, most kind of notable big buildings from the old era standing in Dunwich. Yeah. So everyone was very interested in it. And you could see the progress as So like, we're, talk- we're talking about kind of 700 years of stuff going in the sea. Yeah. That, right. I'd say the last kind of 200 years at least were, this is fucked. We're fucked. 
if not a bit longer than that, 400 years. But, you know, people kept on because people had lived there for generations yeah, yeah. and generations. Well, and it seems more dramatic when we look at it in this kind of compressed time. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> but, you know, if you've lived in Dunwich all your life and it's 1700, and okay, fair enough, a few bits have gone in the yeah. sea. You're going to stick it out, aren't you? You've had one bad storm in your lifetime. Yeah. But other than that, it's been okay. And then your mum's like, oh, well, we had a bad storm back in my lifetime. But anyway, the cliff edge finally reached the church in 1904 and there are some amazing photographs of the church from the side with and the church by now is in ruins because nobody's been worshipping it no one's been using it or looking after it and the edge the cliff you can just see the cliff like drop and the church is just right there by the edge the coastal erosion moved ever inward the church began to topple one section at a time. So the aisle and the nave of the church facing eastward is what started to go first. Right. So the where you would have sat as a as a worshipper, those were the bits that started to drop off the cliff to start with. The tower at the west, west end. end finally fell in 1922. For a while, there were blocks of masonry from the church that could be seen standing on the beach below at the bottom of the cliffs, but that became fewer and fewer pieces. The sea grew and encroached and encroached and encroached. Soon, those were lost beneath the waves. Next, somewhat gruesomely, after the tower fell, it was the turn of the graveyard. During the 1980s, the bones of the dead could be seen protruding <laughs> from the cliff face because, as you saw, it's about to happen. As the cliffs fell away, yeah. eventually they started to expose the earth below the graveyard and the bones could be seen poking out onto the cliffs. Did they do anything about it or did they just wait for nature to take its just, you Just what can you do? Well, I don't know. I mean, I work in a what used to be a church. And at the point at which it was decreed that it would no longer be a church, it has a graveyard, bodies are buried in it, a specialist company was employed to shift the bodies somewhere else. I know, but then that's shifting the bodies from a flat area of earth. Whereas if you think, in this case, you'd have to be either digging in to the side of the cliff face <laughs> or you'd have to be digging down on top of a very precarious mm, I suppose so. piece of earth. So but that's what a, a difficult what a, what situation. The dead? Well, the dead go in the sea, like everyone else. The whole moral of this story is everything goes in the sea. (laughs) One by one, the gravestones fell. Now, from what I can discern, one last gravestone still remains. That of Jacob Forster, who'd been buried in 1796. And the last record I could find of this was that in 2011, the gravestone of Jacob Forster, the last remaining gravestone, was about 4.6 metres from the cliff edge. (laughs) So it may be that by now he's gone in, but I couldn't find a more updated record of that. So that's, it's kind of poetic, don't you think? What, the dead falling into the sea? Well, just the kind of inevitable encroachment. It's, you know... It's a metaphor for one life. One by one, the gravestones fall and there's nothing you can do about it. There's, you know, as you say, will you try and dig up the bones and put them somewhere else? There's no point. They're just going in the sea. You could wait and just um, catch them at the bottom end. Set up some kind of net system. Oh, maybe. But by then you wouldn't even know whose bones they were. They've just come out in a big mess out of the cliff edge. But yeah, this last just standing gravestone, which is all that remains of this huge, amazing display of Norman architecture, All Saints Church, that gradually, bit by bit, first the nave, next the tower, next the graveyard itself began to go in and in and in, and this one last gravestone remained. Even the ruins of Greyfriars Priory in their new spot are now starting to collapse down into the sea. But 
Perhaps surprisingly, a small town does remain at Dunwich. The population, I think, now is about 200. I mean, that's higher than I would have thought. What, given the circumstances? (laughs) Nobody's getting a mortgage in Dunwich, are they? Now people, of course, visit this once thriving hub of trade and worship for a different reason, just to try and spot the ruins. Misery tourism. Just to, you know, see this astonishing sight of nature basically absolutely fucking humans over. But the thing is, there's none of that to see. The whole idea of the fact that nature has screwed everything over by its nature means that there's nothing there. But that's the... <laughs> so you, there's no evidence of that having happened at that point in time. stand on the cliff and be like, time. my lord, I imagine what used to be here, and now it's gone. The ruined masonry now lies up to 10 metres below the waterline. I was going to say, is it like a kind of Christ the Redeemer type uh, scenario oh whereby God. you've got, you know, loads of stuff Don't under the sea? Don't bring up Christ the Redeemer! I have a real problem with... Where is that giant well, that, No, it's not. Jesus. Christ the Redeemer is the... Is the, um, the Brazilian one. Yeah. But is it, there I is a giant like underwater Jesus Malta somewhere, isn't it? or Cyprus or one of those islands. There's a giant statue of Christ... Under the sea somewhere, but it was built to be under the sea. It's yeah, not it hasn't that it fallen fell in. in there. But it absolutely it does something to my brain, which makes me feel really ill when I see photographs of the huge Jesus under the sea and a tiny diver. It's like some awful primordial horror rises within me at the sight of a giant Jesus and a tiny man in the water. I don't know what it is. I can't deal with it at all. It really freaks me out. <laughs> No, I can't do it. So don't make me think that Dunwich is like that. I suppose on a related note, there's uh, famously a H.P. Lovecraft story, isn't there, called The Dunwich Terror? Tell us about it. Well, I, don't, I mean, it's got nothing to do with Dunwich. But, but he took the name. I guess he must have yes. taken the name. He took he the name, I believe, because he had heard tell of this Suffolk town. Mm, or is it the Dunwich Horror? It's the horror. It's the Dunwich yeah. Horror, yeah. But it became the stuff of legends, almost, this idea that it went into the sea and all this this idea that there's a kind of ruined city. And it has become almost on a par with something like Atlantis. No, mm, not quite not on a quite. par. But that sort of idea that actually an image of it is kind of existing as a city under the water, almost this kind of intact yeah, city. Preserved. All the buildings preserved under the water, which of course isn't how it is. It's, no, just, it's just lumps. Massive blocks of stone that have capsized over a cliff and have kind of crashed down and all in a muddle. But the kind of romantic image of it, I suppose, is this lost city beneath the waves. And one of the uh, legends is that you can still hear the church bells yes. tolling under the water as a kind on a, of. On a foggy evening. So that's the story of Dunwich. There we are. We need to remember that we are tiny, puny fools. And if nature wants to put us in the sea, that's what nature's going to do. Some more tiny and more puny than others. Yeah, but I enjoy the story. Thanks for listening. I'm going to just finish by doing a tiny plug. I did a guest spot on the excellent Track One Side One podcast hosted by Gaz Jones. Thanks for having me, Gaz. It came out a few weeks ago, but you can still find it. Look up Track One Side One podcast. Basically, the premise inspired by High Fidelity is that I chose my top five track one side ones. And I, it's quite eclectic, my choice. I won't give anything away. If you do say so <laughs> No one can deny it was quite eclectic. Well, it was quite guitar based, I guess, but within that broad spectrum. Have a listen because it turned out quite well. I think my choices were excellent. Uh, and also, if you do find Track One Side One podcast, there's a lot of really other great guests as well. So give that a listen. And we will be back, I hope, before too long with a very interesting and strange tale of some religious oddity in Bedfordshire, which we will bring to you as soon as we possibly can. Thank you for listening, my dears. Goodbye, Chris. Goodbye. See you next time.